Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. You'll find 100 of these awesome interviews in my podcast series. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of past episodes to listen to them all. I'm taking a break for the holidays and to prepare new interviews for release in January 2023. In the meantime, this week's episode is a replay of one of my favorite interviews from a few years ago with Alejandra W. I believe you'll enjoy listening to it again, or for the first time, if you missed its original release in February 2021. My guest today is Alejandra W., a woman whose story will touch your heart. Originally from South America, she was raised from a baby by her grandparents while her mother's alcoholism derailed her family. Later, after her mother got sober through AA, Alejandra accompanied her to meetings as a little girl. But that exposure to AA was not sufficient to keep her from becoming an alcoholic herself, and she ended up in AA at the age of 15. She stayed sober until she relapsed at 22 and then began a tragic odyssey of full-blown alcoholism, traumatic experiences, and forays in and out of the rooms of AA. When she finally got back to Alcoholics Anonymous in 2009, she was physically, emotionally, and spiritually depleted. But by following the program and the guidance of her sponsor, she slowly rebuilt her life of sobriety. Today, she stays in the center of the program by attending regular meetings, maintaining the 12 steps, and demonstrating her recovery through selfless service work in AA. At 11 years sober, Alejandra's life reflects the many blessings she has received through her active involvement in AA by serving others and passing those blessings on to anyone who reaches out to AA for help. So, please lend your ears to the next hour of AA Recovery Interviews with my guest, Alejandra W. My name is Alejandra. I am an alcoholic. Hi, Alejandra. Hi, Howard. Hi. I'm so happy that you could be here today on the AA Recovery Interviews. You and I have known each other for a long time because you've been sober how many years now? 11 years. 11 years. And, and what's your sobriety date? September 24th, 2009. Wow. You know, I think I met you when you first came in or some somewhere within your first six or nine months. And uh, it's so amazing to talk to you all these years later and not only know that you've stayed sober this whole time, but I've seen you really actively engaged in service work around AA. Yes, I was introduced to service work when I was about like four weeks sober. Really? And um, it was in a really cool way. I was asked to participate in a play. Mm -hmm. It was about the service delegates and uh, it was a Star Wars kind of play. And uh, I played one of the characters and, you know, it was like 12 people. And I was just shocked to see how well people got along. You know, this started from zero to let's have a play. You know, mm -hmm. none of us knew anything about acting or mm -hmm. nothing. It was just like, hey, here's this idea. Let's do this. That's amazing. So this was at a conference that you went to? No, this was at the club. Oh, just at the club. Okay. Yeah, a guy say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna have a play," and uh, I think it was for district 
four or six. I don't remember the district. And they yeah. said, would you like to participate? And then he said, that would be considered service work. And that's a great way to get connected. But then I got to know people that were sober for five, six, 10 years. And I thought that was, oh, wow. You know, how can you stay uh -huh. sober this long? Right. How do you do it? That club was a great place to get to know people. Did you start coming to the club when you first got sober or was it a while? Yes, I got sober at the club at the meeting oh, at yeah. 7 p.m. That was the, the first meeting um, I went to, you know, this time around. The lady that used to help me with my kids, she, mm -hmm. she was in the program, but she went to Spanish meetings and she wanted me to connect to a lady that went to the club. Mm-hmm that spoke Spanish. So that's where she, you know, she took me there. Where are you originally from? I was born in Venezuela. Venezuela. Okay. Mm -hmm. And how long have you been in the U.S.? I moved here in, uh, I think it was August 1998. Okay. So you've been here... A long time now. Quite a long time now. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. So what I like to get is a backstory about what people remember about where they grew up, the families of origin and that sort of thing. Could you share with me a little bit about growing up in your family and what exposure you might have had to alcoholism uh, in your family of origin? Yeah, so um, I come from a really big family mm -hmm. and uh, there was a lot of alcohol around. Like I grew up, you know, around people drinking and uh, there is alcohol issues in my family. There's older alcoholics and um, but it's kind of considered normal mm -hmm. you know <laughs> like when you have a lot of drunks in your family everyone is like oh this is just the way they are that's just how they drink that's just how they act um but growing up i do remember that um i had two uncles who gosh they were really heavy drinkers mm -hmm. you know and there were a lot of get-togethers in my house mm-hmm like a lot of parties. So I saw a lot of people, you know, drinking, playing the guitar, singing, dancing. There were fights too, disagreements, you mm. know, <laughs> arguments. So you're seeing this from the time you were a little girl? Yeah, since I was a little girl, you mm. know, I noticed that there was a lot of um, people in my family that drink, you know, and the, the, the crazy thing was like my grandparents didn't drink, mm -hmm. but older kids did. And then um, I would see the, notice the difference. Like I had one of my uncles, he was kind of scary to me. Mm -hmm. He seemed like a aggressive person. He was really uh, affectionate too, but I just always had this feeling that, you know, with him, things could be really nice or could be really bad. Depending on whether he was drinking or not? Um, he was just like a very overreactive person, very passionate about any feeling. All his feelings seems to be big. The good ones and the bad ones. Uh -huh. So I was always like, hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I loved him, but I kept my distance too. I get that. But I did notice that, you know, the drinking in my family. And it seemed like something fun to do too. <laughs> That's what I thought. Well, so was your house kind of the hub for the extended family? People come over to have the parties at your house most of the time? Yes. Yeah, so um, it was basically my grandparents' house where I grew up and it was like central station for the whole family where all the holidays happen. Mm -hmm. And it was a huge, you know, big and loving family. Yeah. 
But then there was a lot of older stuff that happened that didn't seem okay to me. I was like, I don't think that's okay when my uncles are like fist fighting, you know, (laughs) (laughs) or when my uncle fell asleep in his car drunk and then my grandmother is outside, like trying to wake him up, like, hey, you need to wake up. You can't spend the night in your car. (laughs) (laughs) Now, do you have siblings? Yeah, I do have uh, an older sister. Uh huh. And then I have older siblings too, like younger brothers and sisters. However, I think the only one that ended up, you know, developing, if you call it developing a, a drinking problem, was it's me. Was you. <laughs> <laughs> is, is your extended family, are they still in Venezuela? Yeah, I do have a family in Venezuela and I do have uh, some family here too. Mm-hmm. We're pretty much split. I have some family in Spain and... There's a kind of like a political situation there and people had been, you know, moving mm. away. Mm-hmm. So our family functions totally different than the way it was when I was a kid, you know? Yeah, I get that. So when did you have your first drink? Do you remember that? Uh, I probably had like my first sip of alcohol when I was really young. You know, on New Year's, they were allow us to have a sip of uh, like champagne. Yeah. And then I will wait you know, anxiously for every New Year's <laughs> to have a little zip of champagne. Yeah. Um, it was just, you know, exciting and, in, you know, it made me feel like, you know, like an adult or a grown up or part of the fun or, but I did start drinking when I was 13 years old mm-hmm. and um, I was never a social drinker. From the moment that I started drinking at 13, I got drunk. And I blacked out and, and I loved it. You know, I was like, this made me feel really terrible, but at the same time, it made me feel really good. Mm-hmm. Like what it did to my head and my thinking it made everything really funny. Like I would think like, why do I think that's funny? And I'll be giggling. And it was really, it was like a trip, really. I was like, what is going on? Seems like a number of the people I've interviewed have had that early experience when they were little kids, but the drinking was something that they chose to do at some point later on. Sounds like that was the case for you. You started at 13. Can you identify any particular reason or feeling that made you feel more comfortable with alcohol? I really like, was more like a, like a drinking with friends, right? It was, I wasn't drinking by myself. It was more like my friends say, hey, let's try rum and Coke. So, you know. I was like, sure, why not? (laughs) (laughs) And um, we did, and it was bad. (laughs) You know, we were really young, and we were just drinking Cuba Libre. Like, right? Like somebody got a a bottle from their parents' house and mixed it with Coke and put some lime on it, and it didn't taste bad because it's really sweet. And, of course, it was just like something new to do, you know, and and it felt like uh, it made me feel, I think, probably part of, you know, mm-hmm. you know, I have this group of friends and but then I also realized it made me feel better. I don't think I ever before identify that I felt different at certain points. Mm-hmm. As a kid, I was an overthinker. 
I did think about a lot and I did a lot of comparison between my family and other families. Yeah. And I worry about things that I'm sure other kids didn't worry about. Like, I was like, I don't know. My, my parents are being like really mm-hmm. responsible to be my parents. <laughs> I wonder if they have, you know, yeah. like they seem kind of young to me. <laughs> and then I will compare it to other people. And um, I guess it was the, you know, the family dynamics too that make me overthink and analyze things. Yeah. Probably more than I should. Well, you're in a pretty large crowd of people as uh, a recovering alcoholic. I think there's a real tendency for all of us to overthink things. And uh, in my case, I guess the overthinking kind of came from the fact that I was always trying to figure out why things were like they were in my family of origin. I mean, why is dad mm-hmm. always yelling and hitting us? And why is mom never available emotionally? Mm-hmm. I'm, when you're a little kid, you're thinking in different terms, maybe, but you're trying to figure it out and there's no real logic to it, is there? Yeah, well, you know, with my mom being a, an alcoholic, right? Yeah. And uh, and she is sober now. Mm-hmm. She's been sober since, you know, I'm seven years old. I did see that there was a difference, right? And I do remember uh, her getting sober and, you know, kind of like showing up like, okay, I'm doing better now. And uh-huh. it was it was really hard for the family, right? And especially yeah. in South America, like, being a woman and an alcoholic and it was kind of like what that's tough huh yeah so culturally it's okay for the men to be but not for the women kind of i think i'm I'm sure that what is acceptable is for you know these ladies that they're probably drinking at home right they're playing cards Mm -hmm. with their neighbors while they're you know sipping their wine and they may pass out there but they're in in private, I think it's more when it's like a public thing, the woman that goes to the bar or that is at a party and, you know, mm-hmm. everything, you know, something goes the way it goes with alcoholics. Yeah. <laughs> like, of course. Now, was your your mother, she stopped drinking when you were seven, you said? Mm-hmm. Yes. Did she go to AA down there? Or how did she stop drinking? She went to AA. Um, the next door neighbor was in the program of AA. And uh, she asked him, hey, you know, I really need to stop drinking. And uh, he said, well, you know, we meet once a, a week on Wednesdays. Uh-huh. And they, they met us on, I think it was like a library or something like that. And then he said, um, but you can, you know, you're welcome. It's, uh-huh. it's for men and women, but we don't have women. And she said, I don't care. You know, and she started going She was the first woman in her town, you know, because it was a very small town too. the main city Caracas, there were already, you know, bigger Uh groups and groups that met every day and men and women. But in her case, you know, it was it was really, really different, I guess, and hard. And um, she says she will be forever grateful to those men who helped her Mm -hmm. get, you know, and, and stay sober. Has she ever sat down with you and told you her whole story? Uh, do, do you get a sense of what she went through of being an alcoholic and then getting sober? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes, she has. Yeah. She has. And How old were you when she did that? I was probably about 14, 15 years old. Yeah. So you were at an age where you could understand it 
and it, it made some some kind of impact. Oh, absolutely. And I knew that I was an alcoholic early age because of some of the things that she had shared with me uh-huh. about how does it feel to be an alcoholic. And uh, she would talk to me about like, question you know if you question your drinking you may have a problem you know <laughs> so you knew all the warning signs and so forth pretty pretty early on i did yeah uh, now was your was your father uh was he what was his story with regard to drinking and alcohol like uh he was a you know a drinker too but i didn't grow up close to him and you know i was actually um you know, both my biological parents, they have uh, problems with alcohol. So I went to live with my grandparents and my aunt and uncle at a very early age. I was only nine months. So, you know, when my mom got sober, the whole family, you know, pushed back on her. They were like, yeah, we understand you're sober, but they need a proof, right, that she was okay. Uh-huh. So basically, it was a, a relationship that was um, kind of difficult. Yeah, that sounds tough. And very confusing for me as a kid because I'm like, well, I have here my parents, mm. you know, which my my aunt, my aunt and uncle and my grandparents. And then she is sober and wants to be a full time parent. Yes. And that was hard. That was really hard. It was it was really difficult for all of us as a family. And I think as a kid, you know. Those were probably kind of the things that made me think, like, what the hell is going on, you know? Was she finally able to establish herself as a sober alcoholic in the family's eyes? Oh, yeah. She's still sober, you know. She has been sober all this time. Um, it took time, of course. I you can know? imagine. It wasn't, it wasn't like, a, like, oh, I'm, I'm sober, and she had to stay sober for a little while. Yeah. And now, of course, you know. It's, it's a total different story. With regard to your, your biological mother, how old were you when you got back together with her? She was like kind of like allowed to be around my sister and I, you know, once she, she got sober. Mm -hmm. I remember that I started like going to spend time with her when I was like 10. So that doesn't sound that much different than when parents get divorced or kids go and live with their grandparents, that the parents, for whatever reason, uh, aren't able to be with the kids all the time and can visit uh, on certain occasions. That doesn't sound so different. So when you started drinking at 13 uh, with this group of people, what were the next milestones in your drinking? What occurred past 13 that ramped it up or, or started creating problems for you? By the time I was 15, um, I was gra about to graduate high school. Uh, I was graduating really early. Mm. And then I had already decided that I needed help. Mm -hmm. So I got sober the first time when I was 15 years old. Wow. Yeah, I had a really uh, kind of traumatic experience with uh, one of my friends in uh, school and her dad. Like my friend had invited me to her house for a party and um, her parents were there, you know, uh, the res responsible adults. It was like a like a high school graduation mm -hmm. party, kind of like small party at their house. And um, long story short, like... Um, her dad almost raped me when he was like supposedly to be driving me to my house, right? 
But what happened is like, I was supposed to spend the night there. Mm-hmm. And then everyone left and my friend went to bed. And before I know, I'm the only one up still drinking. Yeah. And there's these guys, including my my friend's dad. And then he offered to drive me to my house and nothing happened. You know, he, I was able to get away, get out of his car. Hmm. And I remember when I was running and I was terrified mm-hmm. thinking, Oh my God, you know, I have a drinking problem. Like this wouldn't have happened if I would have just gone home earlier or I would have gone to bed if I wouldn't have stayed up drinking. Hmm. And, um, the crazy thing is like uh, like a, an old guy in a truck, because this was like five o'clock in the morning, right? Uh, he's driving and sees me and he can tell that I'm, you know, in trouble and asked me what's wrong. And uh-huh. I said, I need to get home. And he drove me and dropped me off at my aunt's house, who is in the program too. And she had been sober for maybe like, I don't know, eight years or so. And I told my aunt, like, I knock on her window and I told her, I am an alcoholic. You know, I think I have a drinking problem. And she took me to an AA meeting wow. at 10 a.m. It was a, yeah, it was a Sunday. So after this horrific experience the night before, the very next morning, you're sitting in an AA meeting? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. And then there, the meetings are two hours long. And after like a 45 minute share, they read the third tradition, which it is a really, really powerful statement when they read the first part of the tradition that says that we're not afraid of you and you're welcome, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the tradition reads. And then they write, then they ask, does anyone here that, you know, has a desire to stop drinking? And, you know, I got up and you know, some people knew me. So they were like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know? Were you surprised by the people that you saw in there who you knew? No, because I knew them, you know, from when I got introduced by my mom to AA. That's okay. her way for us to get to know her. And her story, too, was to attend a few AA speaker meetings and um, to hear about AA at AA meetings. So you got to hear about AA when you were a kid and then when you were an adolescent. And then at yeah. 15, you went for yourself. Yeah, exactly. And I, it was it was pretty clear to me that I, I had a drinking problem. Like, I was like, how can this stuff be happening to me at this age? Mm-hmm. But it was clear to me that it was, you know, and it wasn't like I drank every day. But it's like every time I drank, I had a problem. Um, there weren't a lot of young people mm-hmm. back then, but it was fine. You know, I felt safe. There were a lot of smoking, a lot of coffee, and a lot of dominoes. They would like uh, on the weekends, the people from this meeting, they will play dominoes. They will go to one of this. There was a guy who had a really big house with uh-huh. a really back, really big backyard, and they would put tables out there, and there'll be groups of four playing dominoes and bunch of coffee and food. And, you know, it was kind of like a, a way to entertain themselves, right? And yeah, have fellowship. And um, it was great. That's really marvelous. Uh, that kind of fellowship. I mean, you see it around the U.S., but I've talked to other people who were from South America and some from Europe who 
talk about the kind of fellowship that uh, after every meeting they do something like that. And was this an AA club or was it uh, a meeting that just met in a church? What? It was a meeting that uh, met daily. Daily. Okay. I, and they rented like a, like an office space. Okay. I get it. So it wasn't the same as when you were seven and there was only one meeting a week? No. This was like we had moved to a bigger city. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah. And then there were several groups. There were uh, groups that met at church, but this one was called the Central. So Mm. it was one of the biggest AA meetings. Mm -hmm. And still, you know, there and um, they met every day. What's the biggest difference for you between the one hour and two hour meetings besides just the time factor? Do Do you find one is more enjoyable than the other it's really enjoyable both of them it's just like you have a break Mm -hmm. for coffee and uh and one thing that i really liked it was like there's so much opportunity for service work all these meetings are closed and they do have a 12-step what they whatever they call a 12-step committee which is two guys and two girls Uh and whenever they see somebody coming in new these two people talk to them outside the meeting uh-huh. and they do kind of like what they call a uh, step 12, like, Hey, welcome. Do you have a problem? What's, you know, and then after they talk to him or her for a little bit, mm-hmm. they welcome into the meeting. There's a coffee break for people to go get coffee, but there's also a person that walks like 15 minutes into the meeting with coffee hmm. or tea and hands it to everyone like quietly. So that way people doesn't have to get up and miss the meeting. I get it. Another thing is like uh, people will put their name to speak as they join. They lift their hand and the, the chair has a little book and they put the name and they start calling them. Kind of very similar to Zoom now. Yeah. 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 That's <laughs> yeah. interesting. And then, you know, the shares are a little bit longer because they're such a long meetings. People normally talk minimum five minutes. I don't know. I, I couldn't say if one meeting is better than the other. They're just different. But think about it. Like last time I checked the big book in Latin America, the one that they use is the third edition. And so basically there's some stories that they have never read that are in the big book and they're still sober. You know, I've been doing this big book podcast and the first and second edition stories are that never made it into the third edition or the fourth edition. So people unless they've read the first or second edition, which most people haven't, when they hear those stories, they're hearing them for the first time. And some of those stories are really powerful and really great and left me scratching my head wondering, why didn't this story make it all the way to the third and fourth edition? Well, I get I get it that they have only a certain amount of space and they want to present the stories that have the widest appeal, but that's interesting. So Latin America or Venezuela is still on the third edition, the translated third edition. That's interesting. Yeah, the translated third edition. So you're 15, you're an AA. How long did you stay sober? I stayed sober until I was uh, 22 years old. You had seven years of sobriety. Wow. Yeah, I did. Like, uh, you know, and I got sober and life got really good, really fast, you know. Um, I started going to, you know, college because I, I graduated really early and um, mm-hmm. 
And it was great. You know, life became good so, so fast. And I never had to deal with, um, I guess also because I graduated and I started hanging out with a total different crowd and I was with the AA people. Yeah. Right. I never had to deal with the, you know, trying to fit and uh, be in school. The, these people, they, they, they were worried about getting educated, not about, yeah. not about partying or drinking and, and it was really good and life was great, you know, and I really loved AA, hmm. you know, but the time I was 22, I was married and had my first child hmm. already. So life, you know, just went by and it wasn't difficult to be honest, to, to be and stay sober, you know? Yeah. With or without AA at that time. You you mentioned that it wasn't difficult to stay sober, but was that assuming that you were still participating in AA or were you staying sober without it? Yeah, I was I was participating in AA, but I mean, it's like uh, one of the things that sometimes people wonder is like, oh, how is my life going to be without drinking? You know, and how is the life of somebody young without drinking? And mm-hmm. the truth is like, it is normal. Not everyone is drinking and getting wasted every day or every weekend. True. You know, and that was a part that I didn't have to deal with. Nobody was like, hey, let's go party. No, it was like, you know, I went to school and I did my life. And of course, I hanged out with uh, Mm -hmm. my AA friends. And then the new friends that I made uh, in college, they were normal people. Mm -hmm. They weren't like, you know, super party animals. And I never felt out of place or anything or I never felt like I was missing anything I was like oh this is just the way my new life is and you know and I was so scared of going through like what I had experienced before you know Mm -hmm. the uh, the idea of drinking was not there I was like I never want to experience that again so you were hanging out with people who were their lifestyle was a little bit closer to drinking than your AA friends were, obviously. Uh, did that start to draw you away from AA? Or what was it that that caused the slip at that time? The relapse. It wasn't like a, like, I made a decision, like, I'm going to drink. I was mad. Like, when, when my uh, oldest daughter was born... Um, she was born really early mm-hmm. and there it's an all the traumatic experience. Uh, you know, uh, I had a preemie baby and when she was 11 months old, she was diagnosed with cerebral palsy. Oh my. I was so angry, you know, because in my head, I'm like, what? Like, I don't deserve this, right? I've been good. Mm-hmm. I I have followed the rules. And, you know, it's like one of those, like, I cannot believe this is happening to me. Like, my life changed in a second, right, uh, on a diagnosis that back then, 26 years ago, it was very unknown, you know? And the doctors will tell me, like, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know how's it going to go. All they knew is, like, it was a very, um, what they call kind of extensive, you know, brain damage, mm-hmm. right? So they will say, like, she will never walk. She will never talk, you know. And that was so painful. And I was so angry. Mm, I was like, what? And I just felt like my life has just changed. And, um and I don't like it. And, you know, I kind of wanted to run away. Yeah, I'll bet. And then I think deep inside, I just, 
it was like punishment. You know what I mean? Like, like a way to hurt myself. Mm. So I decided I'm just going to drink. Like, I don't care, you know, what's the point of being sober if this kind of stuff is going to happen? So obviously, you know, my spiritual condition wasn't good, right? Yeah. Because I couldn't accept life on life terms. Yeah, that, that's a heartbreaking situation, though, that you went through. Mm-hmm. Had, had you known anybody or in your time in the program up to that point, had you known people who had gone through similar situations that you could think about or look at and think well they got through it maybe i can get through this or no no really and you know and this is something that hit all of us like family you Mm. know we were all like shocked because we didn't have anyone with special needs in our family so i was completely lost and Mm. you know i it became really clear to me very soon like hey i don't know how to take care of me and i have to take care of somebody with really really special needs and i was like how can i run away how can i escape yeah so you know i um i started drinking and it was like i made a decision i'm like i'm drinking effort you know yeah it wasn't like oh you know i started to get it you know it was like i'm done with aa and i'm gonna drink and I don't know if deep inside I was like, I hope I die. I probably thought that. I don't remember, but I'm sure maybe in the back of my mind it was. What were you thinking from a spiritual point of view? I was devastated, you know, lost. I felt like uh, I just didn't understand it. And I was really angry at God. So I basically kind of made an X, you know, like, I'm not trusting you anymore, Mm, you know? Yeah. And I I stopped praying. I stopped trusting, you know, it's a really dark place to be in. A lot of depression and a lot of hope. I was hopeless. I understand. That's really a tough thing to go through. I, I can see the emotion in your face about it. And it's, it's, it, I can't imagine it. Everybody has their own trials and tribulations, but that just sounds so difficult to know that you have to raise a child from a baby to to an older. Yeah, you know. like a, a lot of a lot of fear too of the future, and it's like uh, it's like um, it felt to me like my dreams had been like crushed, right? Like, and and I couldn't I couldn't find a path. Everything seems so scary, you know, and then. I only drank for 10 months. Really? <laughs> yes. Wow. And in those 10 months, I, my life just derailed, you know, because I was, I was drinking to soothe myself, right? And I was drinking a lot. I was drinking Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you know, like I only did not drink Monday and Tuesday. So it was like kind of like really bad. and. Mm-hmm. I ended up getting a divorce and, uh, and my life was, you know, it, it was like worse and worse and worse. Yeah. And I went back to AA mm-hmm. and I got sober and, um, and things were okay, you know, as okay as they can be. I was, uh, full of fear and, uh, and I still felt lost, but at least I didn't have the, you know, the alcohol component mm-hmm. 
And uh, that's when my daughter and I, we moved here. Just mainly because I was bringing her here for checkups. And then the doctor said, is she walking? And I said, no. You know, I mean, like she wasn't even close to, to that. And it just triggered something on me. Like, are we doing the right thing for her? Are we giving her the, the best care? Mm-hmm. So I decided to give it a try here and move here temporarily for so she could do some treatments here and see how that, you know, if that would get her where the doctor thought that she had potential to be on. Mm-hmm. And I think we were here for a year when I started drinking again. We'll be right back. My friends, if you've enjoyed my AA Recovery interview series and my Big Book podcast, check out Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and second editions of Alcoholics Anonymous, missing from the third and fourth editions. It's an engaging audiobook that I narrated to bring these stories to life for AA members who've never seen them. These timeless testimonials were originally cut to make room for newer stories in the third and fourth editions. But their vitally important messages of hope are as meaningful today as when they were first published. Many listeners will hear these stories for the first time. Lost Stories of the Big Book is available on Audible, Amazon, and iTunes. It's also available as a Kindle book and in paperback from Amazon if you'd like to read along with the audio. You're going to love it. And we're back. So after seven years, you drank again for ten months. During which time you came to you came here for help, and then you started drinking a year after that. After you were here a year, yeah. How old was your daughter by that point? She was almost four years old. Almost four. Mm-hmm. What was caring for her like when you were drinking? So I I managed to care for her, but I will have to say that it was hard. And I don't remember 100% everything. I think my brain has protected me from it because it was really hard. But then I did drink on the weekends. It was like, you know, sometimes I would like just cry myself to sleep Mm. because I was like, I am so lost, you know? And I was like, I am so lonely. And at the same time, I was like, am I doing the right thing? You know, and her progress was so slow that at times I wonder if I wasn't doing the right thing, right? And that's why, and at times, you know, it was, I was obsessed with the idea of making her feel better. Yeah. You know, and getting her better and getting her to walk and getting her to talk and getting her to, you know, Honestly, now looking back on, you know, my drinking, it was the way it was supposed to be how we're at that point, you know, like it's, I have realized it was part of my story because I really don't remember much, you know, and then it came to a point when I went out and got a job too, Mm -hmm. you know, so my life was really hectic. Like I woke up at four o'clock in the morning to put her in a, in a warm bath, do some exercises, mm-hmm. getting her ready for school, putting her in the bath. Then I went and I worked for eight hours and then came back home. I had somebody to help me with her. Therapists will come to the house mm-hmm. and then we'll repeat this. And then we found a routine, right? But in, in that routine, mm-hmm. 
including me, drinking myself to oblivion on the weekends. Mm-hmm. And um, also when when she went with her dad, then of course that's when I got to live my life, and that included a lot of drinking. Was your relationship with your ex husband? of the type that you felt okay letting her stay with him? Oh, yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Thank God for him. And yes, yes. Yeah. Because this sounds like a really, really painful time in your life. Very. I was, um, I think the main problem is like I denied it too. Like I thought that I needed to play the strong mother role, you mm-hmm. know, like, like you're, you're supposed to, be okay with whatever God's will is for you and with your child and, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, that was, it was not the case for me. And, uh, and I felt that I couldn't share that with a lot of people. And, uh, there was no, I didn't seek professional help, you know, mm-hmm. but you know, uh, even though it was painful, she, she was really great because, you know, um, I remember this one time I was so hopeless, you know, and I wasn't drinking that day or anything, but I was just, I was just tired. Yeah. Emotionally tired. And I was sitting on the, um, on the corner of her bed and, uh, I was crying Mm. and she just put her hand on my back. And say, it's okay, mom. It's okay. Mm. It's going to be okay. Mm. She was right. It is okay, you know. I think, you know, even though it's so painful to remember those times, I came to a point, you know, in through, you know, the program and recovering and healing that... Mm. I so love that part too, you know, that struggle and um, all the healing that, that happened, right? And how I was able to see God placing somebody like her in my life mm. so I could stay alive because I'm, I think I probably would have killed myself if she wasn't around. Because even though I felt so lost in my life, I always had her as a purpose, as difficult as it was. Sounds like she was a a real spiritual marker for you in your life. Somebody who could carry a message to you from a higher power that perhaps you weren't seeing for yourself. Absolutely. Hmm. Absolutely. You know, it's like... When I came into the program, I think that was one thing that I was really angry at God. Mm-hmm. And uh, rebuilding my relationship with him has been, one of, has been one of the greatest gifts that I have received. Because um, when they told me, find a God of your own understanding, mm-hmm. I was like, I'm totally changing it. You yeah. Know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was a very religious kid. And... I loved God so much when I was a kid, you know, that was something that was very important to me. And after doing some work and going through the steps and all the healing that happens, I realized, you know, Mm -hmm. 
it is the same God that I had when I was seven or eight before I became an alcoholic. Yeah. The same one that I have today and that I can trust. And it definitely made me, you know, having somebody like Maria in my life had made me see um, God's hand in my life through the, through the whole time that I was drinking. Were you here in the, in the States when you were going through all of that? Yes. So how long were you drinking out there at, at, when you started again? How long was it before you made the decision to go back to AA? This time around? Yeah. Uh, I believe it was, I, I guess, over in 2009. Yeah. So it was 10 years. 10 years. 10 years of drinking. Mm-hmm. Did you try during that time to come back to AA at any point, or were you in and out, or were you just out the whole time? I was just out the whole time. However, I did mm. have some periods of time that I wouldn't drink mm-hmm. when um, I will feel a little bit scared, or I will try to prove myself that, you know, I don't have a problem. See, I can totally testify about the disease being progressive, right? Because I went from, I am an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Let me stop drinking, you know, to I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, how is it that when I drink more, I think I'm not an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> and I started like blaming everything, right? It was like my circumstances. If you had my life, you would drink. Mm. And there were a few times when I thought, well, maybe an alcohol, maybe I am an alcoholic. But then I'll be like, yeah, but it's okay to drink. So what? Mm. You know? So what? Yeah. So what? That's an interesting dichotomy you had there from the standpoint of having your daughter and her being the spiritual touchstone for you. But then at the same time, she was the justification for drinking. Yep. Does, does, that, <laughs> yeah. does that sound about right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Oh, my, my goodness. Yeah. So, and then by the time, you know, I, you know, I got to the program, I had two more kids. Yeah. Um, which was those periods when I didn't drink, right? Mm-hmm. You know, when I was pregnant, even though once again, it is progressive because with right. my daughter, I did drink during the pregnancy. Mm. Um, after I was like, I think I was like six months pregnant, um, I couldn't sleep. I just, mm. you know, and then the doctor said, well, you know, it is very normal for women to develop some anxiety during the mm-hmm. pregnancy due to the hormonal change, blah, blah, blah. You could have a glass of wine or two beers here and there to relax because, you know, but here and there, because we don't want you to become an alcoholic. And it was like somebody said, go ahead and have a drink every day. Yeah. So you got permission from the doc to carry on. <laughs> exactly. Now you're talking, you're talking about pregnant with your second child, with my third child, Well, your third child, mm-hmm. Did, were you drinking through the pregnancy of the second as well? No. Okay. Not at all. Okay. So we have a 10-year hiatus from AA. Did any of your friends or people 
including your mother, people who are continuing on with their AA programs, did any of them reach out to you or did you reach out to them at any point during the 10 years? No, because I did hide my drinking. Mm. All my old friends, mm-hmm. I will hide my drinking from them. And then I had created a brown new life with all brown new friends. Mm. They didn't know that I was enough, that I am an alcoholic, right? So it's like, I will totally just erase this life, start this new life. And then whenever you get to, you know, mingle with these people, pretend that you don't drink mm-hmm. and don't drink around them or anything. And then I will tell myself, you see, you're not an alcoholic because if you were, you will be drinking around them, but you can totally control yourself. You only drink when you want and then carry on with, you know, this new life. And, um, you know, I had a family and I had kids and I had a home and I had a job and life seemed to be a little bit easier. But um, Mm -hmm. and so did my drinking look a little bit different. Right. Like. Like I felt like I was controlling my drinking more. However, the inside, like it was the the way I felt. Yeah. That was hard to deal with. My head. I still felt very mm-hmm. lost and empty and yeah. angry. I can imagine. Over the years, this, that. You and I have known each other in the program. I think I've I've mentioned to you before that I had a problem with clinical depression. Did any of that kind of stuff enter uh, depression or other uh, anxiety, that kind of stuff? Did that enter into the picture while you were still drinking? Yeah, it did at the end of my drinking. So, you know, at this point, I had a great job and I had everything in my life that I should be happy about. Right. I should be content, Mm -hmm. you know, like those hard days with my daughter are over. She has improved. She has Mm. all this. She had had all these surgeries and therapy. She can speak. Um, You know, she is in good health, you know, for her condition. She had made great improvements and I have two little kids and a great, you know, I'm in a relationship and I have a home and I have everything, right? But I still felt empty, unhappy, lost, broken, Mm. you know, and sad. And, Mm. you know, um, so it was my three kids and my ex had a, a, a son, an older. So it was, you know, a bunch of kids and you know, life should be great, but it wasn't for me, you know, and I started experiencing, uh, panic attacks. Yeah. Like I'll be in my car and my car seemed too small and I have to stop in the middle of the freeway and get out of my car and I'm crying and I don't know what's wrong. So yes, depression also set in. And that's a tough disease, isn't it? Huh? That is a really tough disease. It has been for me for a very long time. And I had some of those panic situations and anxiety and, you know, been doing medication for a very long time. And it's been under control for quite a long time now. But I remember when I was drinking and using drugs that I was depressed and I thought those things would lift me out of the depression. But even when I wasn't doing them, then I got sober and I thought I should be feeling happy. I should, I've got the things I have, you know, that to me is the classic, the classic 
symptom of de- of depression, clinical depression, is everything in your life is going great and you still feel like shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Am I right? Yeah. It was bad. It was really bad. And um, mm. and so, how did you get through that? I didn't. You didn't. Okay. Okay. So I guess we're leading up to the point at which you get sober again, but yes, for the last time, what was that like? It was terrible. You know, um, I remember that after those, you know, panic attacks and all that, and, and I had really bad like PMS cause I would get so pissed at everything. Like I would get so angry, like yeah, somebody needs to, hold her angry yeah yeah i want to break everything angry um i was on an antidepressant you know and i still drink you know and um my drinking have taken a new meaning Mm -hmm. it was a game to numb Hmm. so i will like oh i had a hard day at work and i was drinking and i was hopeless you know and i stopped caring about everything Hmm. And uh, everyone was that a gradual occurrence, or did that did you kind of fall off a cliff? What what was that like? How long did it take for you to re- go from where you were to where you finally felt the way you're talking about? I felt I was losing my mind like four to five months before I got sober. I just couldn't share it with with anyone, and then um, I finally shared it with my kid's father, my ex, mm-hmm. like I finally was able to tell him how I felt. And I said, you know, I feel so lost and I, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. And mm-hmm. I feel like I'm not a good mom or, you know, and I said, sometimes I feel like I just want to die. And he looked at me and he's like, oh my God. He's like, what's wrong with you? That's a tough thing to hear from somebody, isn't it? I know. He just couldn't relate, right? Yeah. And he basically said, like, who thinks that way? He's like, as as hard as it gets, I never think about dying. Yeah, yeah. And I just felt so utterly alone, right? Yeah. And then, you know, I kept drinking and drinking and drinking as much as I could. And then... Finally, this idea that I need to end it, I need to kill myself, Yeah, came in and wouldn't leave, you know? This was, you said, what, four or five months before you got sober? Before I got sober. So then this idea that I wanted to kill myself wouldn't leave me. Mm. And it's, it's a really dark place to be in. And I started doing research, but at the same time, I was scared. Mm. Like, I'm like, oh, I want to die, but I don't want to hurt. You know, (laughs) I don't want to suffer. It was just really. So I finally decided, like, yeah, I'm just I'm going to kill myself. That's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to kill myself because I don't see a way out. Mm. And uh, I felt like my life was crumbling. You know, Um, my relationship was not good. I couldn't relate to people, you know, I couldn't be social anymore. And it seemed like drinking wasn't doing it anymore for me, you know, Uh like I used to get drunk and that feeling of everything is okay. It would last for a few days. And now it wasn't like I would wake up and next day life felt like shit. 
Yeah. So sounds like you got to the point where the drinking, the alcoholism and the depression kind of got together. And it was it was like two against one, whatever, whatever it was, something was. And I know that I know that feeling. It's it's a it's a it's a horrible feeling. And the other thing, too, is like I have started praying again, but it wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't a faith prayer. It was more like a repetitive thing. I think it was like a way to soothe myself Mm -hmm. and I will pray over and over and over it was kind of like a manic prayer you know i don't think there was any intention or real faith behind it it was just something that i knew how to do that will carry me through the few minutes that i felt like the wall was partly down you know it was it was a really weird place to be so i finally one night um i decided to take a bunch of pills with uh vodka Hmm. And then I woke up at, um, I think it was Bentop Hospital, and I was so disappointed. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm still here. Mm. And that was so painful. Mm. It was so painful. And um, the doctor suggested for me to go, you know, to a long-term or like a medium care facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, But my ex said, no, 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 she's so strong. She's, you know, he kind of talked to the doctor and sugar-coated everything because he's like, I don't want her to go to the crazy people. (laughs) 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 And um, I went back home and, um, and two weeks later, I tried again. But um, this time... I don't, of course, I don't remember everything, right? I just remember I woke up and I was at the Methodist Hospital psychiatric unit. I do remember they told me, like, sign these papers. And Mm -hmm. so basically they say something like, if you sign these papers, then, you know, later you could leave by yourself if you want to. But if you don't, then we'll still keep you here. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know. So I said, sure. And um, I felt safe, you know, I was in tons of pain, but I felt safe. I felt like, well, here, right, I'm in a room and they tell me when to eat because I had stopped eating. Yeah. I had stopped eating and sleeping and I have totally lost, like, my contact with reality, I think. It was really bad. So um, I just really felt safe. And while I was there, uh, two men from AA Spanish meeting came to visit me. Hmm. And they talked to me for a little bit while I was in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And I don't remember everything. I just remember them visiting. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, when I got out of the, the hospital... You know, I was terrified. I didn't I didn't want to go back to my life. Mm-hmm. I was like, God, what am I going to do? You know, I was like, I don't want to leave. And it seems like I cannot kill myself. <laughs> yeah. And then um, the lady that helped me with the kids, she had been with me at this point for about eight years. Yeah. And uh, she had never told me she 
was a sober woman. You know, we never talk about that stuff. Yeah. So she had been just watching and observing. She had a conversation with my mom and, you know, my mom said, like, how is she doing? She said, she's not doing good. You know, she's very fragile. She's here, but, you know, mm. she doesn't want to be here. And, mm-hmm. and then my mom said, well, once they adjust her medication, and she said, she said, well, she needs, she needs to stop you know, not to drink. Mm-hmm. And my mind's like, well, she doesn't drink. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, she does. <laughs> Boy. So that kind of opened, you know, the door to the big secret that I have. And it's the fact that I have been drinking for a long time, mm. hiding it, you know, and we are as sick as our secrets. Oh, like, yeah. So that's when my family was like, no wonder. So she um, asked me, if I could allow her to help me. And she said, you know, I love you as a daughter. Like, you know, I've been working with you for a long time and please let me help you. Mm -hmm. And then she said, after I offered this help to you, if you don't want it, that's fine. And she, she took me to the club. Saved your life. Yeah. Then, you know, she didn't tell me where we were going. She said that it was a church. (laughs) (laughs) Where they smoke and drink a bunch of coffee, right? Sit in plastic chairs. (laughs) Yeah. And then I guess, you know, once I was there, I was like, okay, yeah. It kind of sank. Like, I remember, you know. Yeah. As lost as I was, it connected me for the first time to something that I have known for a long time. Yeah, well, you spent you spent all those years earlier on that was still a part of you, and uh, and whatever exposure you had with your mom that was still a part of you. So you show up to what what year was that? That was uh, two thousand and nine. Two thousand nine. Okay, because I yeah. remember I remember you when you first probably within the first couple of weeks that you came in. Yeah. You seemed to be in a lot of distress at that point. I was, yes, I was in a lot of distress. Um, you know, I, I connected to a woman that became my sponsor from day number one. Good. Uh, she asked me if I thought if, if I was an alcoholic and I said no. <laughs> uh-huh. She said, OK, yeah. She's like, so I'm saying, then why are you trying to kill yourself? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> Smart and lady. I said, well, <laughs> yeah. And I said, well, because there's all this other stuff in my life, you know, everybody else was messing with me. And this was my response to it. Right. Mm-hmm. She said, well, I understand. And she said, well, let's do something. Go get a desired chip today. If you're not an alcoholic, getting the chip and no drinking, it's going to be super easy. Mm-hmm. Let's give it three months. And if after three months, you're still convinced that you're not an alcoholic, your return is our chip and we'll give you your misery back mm. i say sure because i'm a competitive person yeah, yeah. i'm like i can do anything and everything and i'm the best at it i was like sure i'll show yeah. you four weeks into it i'm like oh my god <laughs> you know <laughs> what have i been doing yeah. and it was a very painful process my the consequences of my drinking started happening right after I stopped. Drinking. Yeah. So the walls came tumbling down after you had already walked through the gate. Yes. Yeah. It wasn't like, you know, like everything tumbled. And then I came to AA. It was like, yeah, I was 
sober yeah and things started going really bad um i started going to a divorce and custody battle but i don't know it's really hard to explain how or like people will say keep coming back and i went to a meeting every day and after two or three months i was going to a meeting three times a day yeah i remember that i needed to yeah you know that's that's what i needed and whenever things went wrong which was the first year yeah <laughs> consistently i went to a meeting yeah you had a place to go yeah and i did service work i don't know there is some freedom on losing everything yeah i found freedom when i lost everything and i have shared this in meetings before i had to lose everything in order to make aa my everything because i tend to get well and think like Ah, it wasn't that bad. Oh, maybe I'm not an alcoholic. Oh, I can do controlled drinking. Yeah. You know, it's like I had to go through everything that I went through mm. to have the life that I have today. And it's a it's a beautiful life. I I, I would uh, presume whenever I see you, you've, you've got a much different look on your face these days. Although with the masks and all, I haven't I haven't seen you in person for a long time. But but you did. Whenever I would see you in meetings, I was always I was always really glad to see you. And you'd stick around after, and we'd talk and chat and laugh, and it was it was always a good time. And I'm thankful that you that you made it back because a lot of people don't. And uh, your story is too compelling and too important for other women, especially, to not hear. So I I really appreciate the fact that you've brought that message to this podcast, but also that you're bringing this message on a regular basis to other women and men. But so since 2009, you've been sober. What have been some of the big milestones in the last uh, in the last 12 years that you can think of where maybe you got a little close to the edge and you were pulled back by AA or things that happened? What I'm interested in is how has AA worked for you at the time that you needed it most over the years? Oh, my God. Um I'm so thankful to AA, you know, mm-hmm. and I always share this, like, about the promises. I didn't know there were promises, mm-hmm. right? And I'm glad I didn't know because I'm one of those, uh, like, instant gratification kind <laughs> yeah. of people. Give it to me now. So I would, I would be like, I'm going to do this work really quick so I can get that, <laughs> yeah, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I got sober because I had to, and I stay sober because I didn't have anything else to do, right? Like, it became really clear that God didn't me gone right i get that but i learned really quick that things weren't gonna go my way yeah so like i said on the first year i lost everything including you know custody Mm. of my Mm -hmm. kids and um it was devastating when my attorney told me like you know if they have to make a decision today you won't get the kids Mm -hmm. and then we ended up having you know shared custody and i was okay with it I had to accept that the consequences of my drinking mm-hmm. were this and that it was okay that I could stay sober through that. So that's one thing that I went sober. That's a big thing. And I have always lived on the premises of there's more life and I have faith, right, that I'm here for my kids, you know, and time has proved that. Mm-hmm needed a sober mom and this is the way it needed to be and things have changed of course i remember when that happened i went to a meeting and i shared about the fact that i made lose custody of my kids yeah. and then this guy shared after me and he said 
shit, if they give me custody of my kids, I'll drink. <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, yeah, he may be right. You know what I mean? I think I, I, think I know who you're talking about, too. <laughs> so that helped me. And um, my oldest daughter, Maria, she her health had declined. Mm. And the doctors have told me she needed to go to a assisted living care. Oh my. And that was, that was really hard. And that was, she was the only constant and stable thing in my mm-hmm. life. I have changed my life to fit my drinking. And I had tons of fear, but I didn't drink. Yeah. You know, I thought, man, this is the thing that can get me drunk. Uh-huh. But um, I got into service work, you know, service work has always helped me. Like I get out of myself, mm-hmm. right? And at times it felt like, am I avoiding my life? But no, it's like when you're working and doing things for others, it's like you're not paying attention to yourself. And that's when God comes and helps your step. And then when I look back, mm-hmm. I was like, wow, this happened. And, you know, I shared this with um, a good friend in, in the program. And I told her, like, I'm so scared. I am so scared. And she said, listen, this is one that you're going to have to walk through with God. And we, your AA friends will be at the end of this storm waiting for you. But you have to pick courage and walk. You have to walk this Mm -hmm. one and you're going to be okay. Now, the crazy thing is like I shared this in a meeting uh, about what was happening with my daughter and how much hurt and how much fear I had about letting go a big part of me uh-huh. and letting go also at a purpose, right? Oh, yeah. And um, two women after the meeting came to me and one told me she's passed, she died not too long ago, I think like over like a little bit over a year and she told me that her son had lived at the same facility where my daughter was going Mm. for 30 years Mm -hmm. or so. And he was a little boy. And she, she told me some of the things that she experienced and she said, you may experience the same. And somebody else came and shared that her sister lived at this facility and what a great life she had and, Mm. and said, you know, do you want her to have that awesome life? Mm. And I say, yes. And I say, well, then you need to let go. And this older lady told me, you know, these kids are given to us from God. And then at a certain point, God wants you to give them back to them. Yeah, let them go. Yeah, trust, trust God. And, and it has been an incredible journey. Like I've seen my daughter have such a great life. She, she has a job and she was in ballroom dancing and... He was a cheerleader, you know, she has a, a whole community. Nothing is the way I thought it was going to be, you know. Well, yeah, it's understandable because she's got a sober mom who understands the importance of staying in the middle of the program by virtue of the service work that I've seen you do over the years. Those two women being put in your life at that point, boy, if that's not a God thing, I don't know what is, but the fact that two sober women had experience with the very place that you were having trepidations about. Yeah, incredible. It's incredible. And, you know, I I have an amazing sponsor and um, um, I cannot be more grateful, you know, because I really cannot do life without having a sponsor. 
Yeah, I'm the same way. It's just an anchor in reality that even when all the wheels fall off, you still know somebody who can help pick you up. Yeah. And then, you know, she always reminds me of where I was and where I'm right now, right? Because yeah, uh, my disease is always telling me I'm not doing the right thing. You're not where you're, you know, you're not where you're supposed to be. When I present to her, like, hey, look, look at my life. And she's like, what are you talking about? And then she will re remind me, like, this is where you came from and this is where you are. So whenever I'm struggling, all I have to do is remember my first meeting where I was that day. Yeah. And where I'm at today. And that just gives me perspective. Sometimes I just cannot even believe, you know, how things have changed. I think uh, the deepest thing is like my relationship yeah. with God and how I do not feel lonely anymore, yeah. even when I'm alone, you know. I do feel, I can feel lost sometimes. And that's when I share with my AA friends and my sponsor and they're like, hey, no, this mm -hmm. way. You know, there's there's always a solution. And I do know that the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, it works for every single problem I have. That's a terrific realization and, and one that I think has the power to keep you spiritually connected and attached to AA for, for a very long time. There's a line in the in one of the stories that I did for the Big Book podcast from the second edition that never made it into the third and fourth edition. And it said, giving is living, living is loving, and loving is God. And you don't have to worry about God because he's right before your eyes. And I thought that was a beautiful sentiment. I wondered why that story didn't make it further. But I, there, there were other gems, obviously. But um, you never want to lose sight of it. But it sounds like you've got the people in your life who, if you start to, they'll remind you. And that, to me, is one of the greatest blessings that AA has to offer. You know, this hour has gone by like minutes, Allie. And I'm so grateful to you for opening up to me and allowing me to get to know you better through this process. And maybe this podcast will be heard by others who were wondering whether or not they could do it. And to hear your story and know that here's a woman who was taken all the way to the edge. And here she is today as a, as a beautiful, sober mom and member of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's a, it's a real blessing to know you. This has really been terrific. I love you. You're a beautiful person. And I want to thank you so much for doing this today, Ali. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love you. And I'm, you know, I'm really grateful I got to walk this path with you. You have been instrumental in my sobriety. Well, my friends, that's a wrap for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Alejandra W., for sharing her story. And thank you for tuning in. If you enjoyed AA Recovery Interviews, will you please tell others how to listen to it? Of course, you can listen to all of the interviews in this series by following this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Pandora, Stitcher, and other podcast providers. Or tell Siri, Google Assistant, or Alexa, play AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, to hear every show, share your comments, and also contact us. If you want to email me directly, it's howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all production costs, and no one receives financial gain from the show. 
AA Recovery interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA, that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon.